לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, with Jeremy Kalman. I'm just in the next room right here. Beautiful show you got here, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky. And I, and I speak to you from Highland Park, Conservative Temple Congregation, Anshay Ahmed. No, I don't. I'm speaking to you from my office, but here we are together in New York City, and, and but we're COVID sensitive and we're COVID scrupulous, so we're not sitting together in the same room. And well, I am Kessler. still <laughs> somewhere on Long Island somewhere trying Island. to hide from COVID. You know what, it's, this is really great. One of these days, one of these days, we're all going to be in the same room again. We'll we're do it live. Do again. We're going to do this live. We're going to do it like a whole, a whole audience participation, okay? I, I want to do this in my shul. Jeremy, we can do it in your shul. Barry, yes. we can do it in your living room. Living room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Parsha Va'era, second Parsha in the Book of Shemot. Amazing Parsha, because it introduces to us the drama, the story of the Exodus, it's going to begin with this Parsha. But the Parsha has, as it were, a preamble in which God says to Abraham that I appeared to Abraham, to, God says to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. And now he's saying, I'm giving my name Adonai, which tells us, reveals to us a, a new facet of God. We don't want to go into this, but we have to for the sake of just um, reintroducing ourselves to this Parsha, uh, recall the language at the beginning where he is told to say to Bnei Yisrael, I'm going to take you out from underneath the oppression of Egypt, I'm going to save you, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to take you to me as a people. This becomes, and then I'm going to bring you into the land. So our tradition has really taken the first four of these and made them into the Arbat Lishanot Ge'olah, the four terms relating to our redemption. But I'm wondering if you could just kind of orient us towards this preamble in a way that you understand it or you would teach it. What's going on here? What's the purpose of this? How does Israel respond to this? And perhaps we could offer just a, a little bit of a reflection on that. Barry, you want to start off with that? So I think that this is one of the key themes of the Torah, of the Bible, and the fact of Jewish religion, that God is a primary, if not the primary, actor. And as human beings, we must fashion our lives before God's commands. We should not think that human endeavor alone resulted in the exodus from Egypt, or I think we're led to believe throughout our lives, for much of our lives, that even though, especially here in America, we emphasize, and after the Enlightenment, we emphasize the individual, 
the the original Jewish message is one of a corporate body, the nation, in service to God, not trying to be more than we can be in the sense that human beings can do whatever they wish if they put their mind to it, but that human beings can achieve much in service to God. Jeremy, your, your relationship or your interpretation of the first uh, passage here. Well, um, I, I think what Barry said is, is, is great. Um, and God is the actor. You know, we've, we've often commented, not we in this group, but Jews have often commented that, this, that the Haggadah is not the story of Moses' leadership, but of the divine action. And that's true about these verses. They are, they are a message of liberation. They are a message, you know, of, well, you guys are suffering terribly. Do not lose hope. Do not give up. There is something else that is going to happen that is going to mean breaking out of the, of the suffering, the hotseti, the, the, uh, I'll take you out, itzalti, I'll rescue you, I'll redeem you. Lakakti etchem li, I will take you to be my people and establish the covenant, veheveti, and I'll bring you to the land that I promised you. But what's interesting to me most strongly is the line that, that follows this exactly. God gives Moshe this message of liberation, and it says, And Moses said this to the children of Israel, but they don't listen, because they are of short spirit, shortness of breath, or uh, avodah kasha, and and this cruel, this this very very heavy labor, I think that this verse is so poetic, uh, with, with a little bit of midrashic reading. Moses says yes to the people, but they can't hear mikotzer ruach because of short spirit, which maybe you can read a little bit again, a little bit uh, poetically or non pshat as. Uh, kind of scantiness of spirit. You have to be a wide open, broad-souled, hopeful person to be able to hear a, a message of liberation. But the Egyptians have effectively beaten it out of the Israelites. They are just whoop, they are beat dogs at this point. And Moshe has to give them the message that is going to make them open to the possibility that the world can be different. So just to add on to that, the word I would use instead of shortness of spirit, which is of course faithful to the text, is they're dispirited. And Moses' job, in a sense, is to revivify the people. Inspire. He has to put some life into them so that they can actually leave Egypt. Inspire, like, to give them breath. I like the way you, you point out the, the opposites, Cain and Law, in that verse. You know, it's just, you read this a hundred times, you don't really notice that, you know, so Cain, is, he's being positive and they're being negative. You know, it reminds me, you know, we're, we're in uh, this time of COVID and we want to be, you know, we cheer a negative test, you know. We want to be negative. I always find that so funny. Whenever anybody comes back from uh, from a medical test, you know, you've got a, a, a biopsy or whatever, they go, thank goodness it's I'm negative. negative. <laughs> I'm such a negative person in my in my negative life. is positive, positive is negative. So one thing about this uh, this text that that I, I like to f focus on sometimes is that you know I, I do this shtick with uh, compressed biblical text where I count the words and find the middle word. And I'm always very surprised that the middle kind of reveals the core message of the text. And it seems to me that the middle of it is, 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 
that you shall know. It's not an accident, in my opinion, that the core of this text is about is about Israel knowing, and and it only it, it only magnifies Jeremy what you said, which is that the people they're not interested because they're 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 basically crushed. So it, it, I, the 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 teaching that I often you know, fall back on here is there's a time for everything. There's a time for theology, a time for explaining you know spiritual matters, and a time for talkless and. You know what? When the people are downtrodden and crushed, they, they don't want to hear about God. <laughs> they don't they don't, they don't necessarily want to, want a big theological explanation of exploration of redemption. They they just want to get out of there, right? You know, but I, I would first of all I get that, but I would take what you observed about the bidatem. You will come to know that that I am the, the Lord, your God, who takes you out beneath the burdens of the Egyptians. Um, I would say that, that one of the things that's true about religion, I mean, I would think, certainly the religion that I like and practice, is that it, that it is talkless, but it's, all about, it's also about consciousness. It wouldn't be enough for God to say to the Israelites, guess what, guys, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be pancakes for breakfast tomorrow. And we're not going to have to serve the Egyptians anymore. No, we actually not only are we going to go someplace and build a righteous society, but you're going to have a mental and spiritual relationship to God as well. And it's not disconnected from the Tachlis, but the Tachlis is not sufficient in and of itself. Maybe, maybe right now they're not quite ready, but they're going to so, go someplace that's going to entail a consciousness change as well. So knowledge of God is about awareness of God's actions in history. It's not a matter of belief that if we really think hard about something, we convince ourselves of its truth value. That's not knowledge of God. That may, may be knowledge of yourself, but it's not knowledge of God. Knowledge of God is seeing God working in the world in which we live. And that's why the five verbs are all active verbs. They're all verbs of action that we can see, and the believer can incorporate that into a way of life. All right, can we go to the next, the next passage just for a second? I, because it, it's such a rich moment in Moses' self-understanding where God says to Moses, go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says to God, hey, Israel, lo they don't listen to me. How, how the heck is, is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Ariel? I am, I am thick lips. I am, I am uncircumcised of lips. Um, and and what's he saying there? And and take us into you know the character here. How would you develop his character? And why is he saying this? Well, it's not. We're not so far from the, the burning bush where where Moshe had floated all these excuses for why he didn't have to do this job. But one of the things that I that I like about this passage is. You know, I think a lot of times we, we, especially if, if the promise, if somebody promises us something, and especially if the promise is the Rabboni Shalom, the master of the world, you know, we think, okay, it should happen like right away. God has brought Moshe into this situation. And by the way, before it gets better, it's going to get worse, you know, and, and you told me to come down to walk into the, to the palace of the most powerful ruler in the ancient world and to tell him to let the slaves go. And I thought that was going to happen. Well, you know what? Not only did it not happen, and now he's now he's confronting the reality. Not only did it not happen, 
the, the, the Israelites didn't really believe him. It, not, Pharaoh didn't respond very well. He, we saw at the end of the last parasha, he worsened the burden. He, he made them make more bricks without giving them the raw material. This has just totally gone south. He's and a- so Moshe is, is at this point, um, you know, he's, the, his own self-doubts have been exacerbated. But rather than thinking that this was, was going to be an easy route, this has started off much worse than he anticipated. He's such a flawed person. Well, I, I before we condemn him as a flawed person, I, I think we love him. We have to explore the image a little more. And orla or circumcision appears in two other contexts in the Torah. One is brit milah, and the circumcision has to be is is surgery. We remove what the impediment with a knife. And the other kind of... Well, you were unconscious of that, but yes. I I I do not remember that. Okay. But the other thing (laughs) has to do with with fruit. The first three three years of fruit on a tree, it's called orla. And is not able to eat, but the fruit outgrows its orla status. And I, when I think of Moses, Moses recognizes that the job of the prophet is to speak for God in the world, that God does not speak directly. We want God to speak directly, but he can only speak through a human being. And Moses is not sure that he has the interior voice to carry God's message. And God keeps telling him, yes, you do. Yeah. How about how about one more one more um, uh, one more more orla, which is umaltem et orlat levalchem. Right. Um, uh, circumcise your hearts. By the way, I just as, as Barry and uh, Elliot know, I had an interesting conversation with a, a young man of Jewish family who has found his way to uh, to a heretical Jewish sect of the Second Temple, um, and is really impressed with uh, with the Christian scriptures and. So I had a conversation with, and we, one of the things we talked about is circumcision of the flesh, the Jewish way, circumcision of the heart, which, which is um, Deuteronomy's uh, uh, phrase, you know, once, of course, Paul in the Christian scripture picks it up. That's what it's all about. It's all about circumcising the heart. The heart can sometimes have a, um, a, a, hard, a hard coating, a thickening, a callus or something like that. Um, and it's got to be removed for you to have the openness. And Moshe, at this moment, for the reasons that we said, it's not, I, I, makes him a flawed person or not. I don't know. We're all flawed people. But Moshe has not yet, um, he, he's going to have to go through the tunnel. And the tunnel's going to stink. And it's going to have lots of failure. And he's, by the way, learning that the Jewish people are not such easy people to work for. And he, he's got to make this, he's got to make this route. But he doesn't. He doesn't yet believe in himself, and he's not quite sure that that this message is going to get heard. Okay. So then the text takes us into a bit of a genealogy, and it might be very interesting here that that to ask why the Torah is presenting this genealogy here, a short genealogy of maybe a dozen or so verses, um, and and maybe what we what we have just received is God's. Um, appointment of Moses in, uh, you know, through this really compressed text, Moses' rejection, and now shifting gears and telling us, well, this is where he comes from. This is his family. 
And uh, what what is notable about this genealogy? Barry, we were talking about this before, but you can share some. So there are a couple of things that are notable. First of all, three people, their lives, the years of their lives are mentioned. Levi, Kahat, and Amram. And Levi and Amram lived to be 137, which I noted, I think, several weeks ago is the age of Ishmael at his death. And Kahat lives to be 133. And obviously... I assume the numbers must mean something in some numerical scheme, but the fact that they're each given an age that they died is significant. The other thing that's significant is that it mentions that Aaron marries a daughter of the tribe of Judah. Um, I can't remember her name, but she's oh, the, daughter of, the daughter of Aminadab. Yeah. And Ellie, that, do you remember her name? Elisheva. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, now I won't forget. Um, that Amin Nadav, I think, is responsible for his grandson's name, Nadav, and perhaps even Avihu. And I think that part of the issue here is the tension in the Torah and later in the Bible over who is the true ruler of Israel. Is it the priest or the, the prince, the king? Judah, of course, is associated with the monarchy. That's the tribe of David. And Aaron is associated with the priesthood because he becomes the ancestor of the righteous priests who will who are supposed to rule in the in the temples. And I think that that gives us a contrast between Moses and Aaron, because there's also a tension between the role of Moses and the role of Aaron. Last week and again this week, we have this curious image where Aaron is going to be the prophet and Moses is going to be the God figure, and which is a, a, a striking image. But the other part of it is when before the first plague, there seems to be some confusion over who's going to administer the plague. Is Moses going to take the staff and and strike the Nile, or is it going to be Aaron? Because so, there is this tension over who the ruler is of. Well, let's of go. The Israel. Israel. Let's, let's explore this text a little bit more because again, Moses will say, "Ani aral I'm I'm uncircumcised. How is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And God finally. You know, gives him the solution. I'm making you a god to Pharaoh. And Aaron will be your prophet. And the the word here is a duopoly, right, Barry? This is the word that you gave us before. Duopoly, or no? It's a duumvirate. Duumvirate. Duumvirate, or a, not a dyad, but a diarchy. A, a diarchy. Okay. Uh, and what what is Striking here is that the two brothers have this relationship where they can play off of each other, and 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 you know, seeing the the story now unfolding from the beginning and having this duumvirate uh, in the leadership, I think I think makes it makes it a very very interesting story. It's not you know the the great redemption story in, in the United States is the uh, the civil rights story Martin Luther King is the singular leader uh, the extraordinary charismatic leader um, but what we don't remember in thinking about that story is that around him there 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 are other people there's a whole team of people but I would I, I mean I don't know enough to know who is the second there I mean who 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 is there was there a second one or was it well i think it was probably ralph abernathy may have been but there were so many christian leadership conference 
But also, Jesse Jackson was there, um, a very young Jesse Jackson, and a couple others I'm embarrassed to say Andrew I don't remember. Young, James right, Bond, Andrew Young, James Bond. So there nobody would mistake. But we, we, have a, we have a tendency to, we have a tendency, I think, for ease of storytelling. You know, oh, David Ben-Gurion, you know, created the state of Israel, and, and George Washington, you know, uh, rebelled against King George. You know, we have a tendency that this is known as the great person theory of history, like that singular individuals had had these um, had these, you know, ama amazing leaderships. And of course, it, it's true. Um, but especially with respect to the American civil rights, which which was a grassroots movement about so many people and so many, so many people put their lives on the line and people got cracked heads and people got thrown in jail and all of them, you know, in that great moral, you know, rebellion changed the world. And I'm going to guess that the same thing is true here. It is the story of Moshe, but it is the story of, of Aaron too. And, and as, as we were saying, the genealogy, like it appears to be a fragmentary genealogy, right? It goes, right. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and then just because it's only Levi. Yeah, that's it. Um, presumably there was at some point the rest of the tribes too, but we don't have them because, because the story it wants to tell us is who, you know, uh, uh, who Aharon, who Moshe, this is that self-same Aaron and Moses who would, but I want to call your attention to something which is, is an amazing, amazing verse that also has an amazing, amazing Midrashic exposition. The verse is um, right after the uh, part where Moshe says, you know, I'm Aras Fatayim and, uh, and Pharaoh's not listening, nobody's going to listen to me. But, so chapter 6, verse 13, 613, easily rememberable. Vayidaber Adonai Moshe Haron. God speaks to Moses and Aaron, Vayitzavim, and commands them, El Bnei Yisrael ve'el Paro Melech Mitzrayim, commands them to the children of Israel and to Pharaoh, Lehotziyad Bnei Yisrael Meretz Mitzrayim, to release the children of Israel from Egypt. So, commands Moses and Aaron, El Bnei Yisrael ve'el Paro Melech Mitzrayim. So there's two people who receive the address from Moshe and Aaron about liberation. One of them is Pharaoh, for obvious reasons, but one of them is the Jewish people, the, the uh, Elbene Israel. So the, the Midrash, which is mind-blowing and a great Midrash, says that, that actually this is the first commandment in the Torah that the, that the Jewish people, some of the Jewish people in Egypt had slaves, and they have to release their own slaves first. Whoa. Nice. What an amazing comment. But the second thing, even if we take it out of that sort of um, expansive, you know, Midrashic uh, storytelling, this gets to this other thing that we're saying, which is that, yes, you speak to the power structure and tell them to change their laws or change their rules, but you also have to speak to the people and get them ready for a liberation that they can't quite conceive of. So before I say to Pharaoh, let the people go, I have to command the people that they have to get ready to go. So that may be a great frame. I, Barry, I know you want to jump in here. We'll talk about it so, for, for another major theme, which is who are the plagues for? But I know before we get to that, Barry. So I'm struck again by this image of Arasafatayim. And what makes Aaron in some ways a better speaker than Moses? And I wonder if it's a reflection on Moses' own command of Hebrew and his ability to represent the Israelites. Interesting. And that's why Aaron would be superior, because Aaron is not only native-born, but native-raised, whereas Moses was raised in Egypt, presumably speaking Egyptian, 
And it would explain a lot of the tension between Moses and the people if Moses can't always quite get out the words that he needs the people to hear because they have a language problem. I'm smiling because we're recording this on Yom HaIvrit. Today is the, the, you know, Israel's national day celebrating the Hebrew language, the birthday of Eliezer ben Yehuda. And, you know, I was listening to a, a spot on the radio this morning, the Israeli radio, and, and they were saying what a, what a great miracle it is. You know, we cannot underestimate the power of the language here. And I think, Barry, you make a really great point that, that this, this is probably not his first language. Right, and just to add to it, that's why the image is so great. He's a Rasapatayim. He's uncircumcised because he's missing the Israelite sign. He's the golden leader of, of the Israelite leadership. He has an accent. Like Shimon Peres, who used to yell about American accents. Okay. But right. the Polish Hebrew accent was okay. Well, well, that is, you know, that is absolutely just brilliant. I, I totally had not thought of that. And and that that is just really great. Um, you know, it's interesting, by the way, that both the current and the previous Rosh Memshelet Yisrael, both both Natalie Bennett and Bibi Netanyahu, of course, they speak terrific Hebrew, but they both grew up in America, so they, they have amazing English. All right, so let's go back to that 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 theme, and this with this theme, we're going to kind of ride it out. We're not going to go into the plagues; we won't have time to go into them directly. But let's ask the meta question, which is having. Having quoted that verse that you quoted before, Jeremy, by Yitzavim El Bnei Yisrael El Paro, commanding the people of Israel and Pharaoh, it seems to me that there are two audiences for the plagues here. So let's go into that for a second. Are, are the plagues to crush Pharaoh, or are the plagues to impress the Israelites? And how would you even navigate between these two purposes? Are they the same? Or are they different? Or 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 is it? Is it only one or is it only the other? Where do you weigh in on this? How do you think about this, Barry? It's got it's got to be oh, it's got to be both. I mean, on the one hand, you know, um, like the the thing is that Egyptians know there's none like me in all the world, and the Egyptian, you know, being a polytheistic, you know, whatever ancient religion, they had all the different gods and they had all the different images. And they also, it seems like God also wants them to recognize uh, the majesty of the divine. Uh, I think, you know, be, because the plagues seem to be oriented, not that I know very much about what ancient Egyptian culture is actually like, but what, I, what one gets the feeling is there's, they, they worship the sun, so there's darkness. They worship the Nile, so there's so there's you know uh, blood and blood frogs and in the Nile. They worship they worship the fertility. Um, so you know so there's like all the bugs and, and everything. They worship they worship the, the, the agriculture. So the 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 ar, the uh, arba the uh, locusts all come. So it's it seems like in what I know of, of Egyptian culture, it seems like the plagues are like pre surgical precision for undermining sure uh, certain sure. Egyptian confidence. But, but I mean, I'm thinking now about Passover. And so there is a drama that unfolds. This is a dramatic moment at the Seder. Um, and that, the past, it's told in both directions for us. I don't know, Barry, if you have any thoughts on, on... Well, what I'm thinking is that we don't really hear from the Egyptians until they cry at the, the night of the last plague. Which is next week's Marsha. Yeah. One might have thought, though, that when the... 
Nile turns to blood or to red, at least, that some of the Egyptians might have said something to Pharaoh that, you know, this doesn't work for us so well, <laughs> Mr. Pharaoh, please do something. Do we really need these Israelites anymore? And then the frogs. But Pharaoh, I think, is portrayed as a kind of a divine toy for God, that he is, you know, he is stubborn from the beginning, but by the end, he's just stubborn about being stubborn. You know, he refuses to give in. And I think the point is to kind of crush Pharaoh. And it's not for the Egyptians to see that. It's for the Israelites to see that. Well, maybe that the Israelites know. need to see how triumphant their God is. It's maybe not only about power, but it's about freedom. And that in, in reducing Pharaoh and taking away his free will and making him subjected to the hardened heart, he is no longer free. And maybe what we're seeing here is a drama, really a drama of freedom. I, I think part of, part of the difficulty in now speaking about this Parsha is that, you know, I, I, as a rabbi, as a person living within the Jewish calendar, I'm thinking, oh my God, it's like Pesach now, you know, it's like, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're sitting in, uh, uh, the, you know, December, January, and um, Pesach is, you know, several, several months away. And yet, um, by reading this, we're, we're coming into, we're coming into contact with the central narrative, which is celebrated at that time. I'm just wondering if, if, there's something to these different rhythms of, of the year. We have a reading rhythm and we have a celebratory rhythm. We've talked about that before, but now we're, we're smack in front of it again. And, and so what is that doing to us? What is that? Well, we also have the daily rhythm because of the, the passage in Mishnah Bracho, which is also part of the Haggadah, about mentioning the Exodus at night. And we do that every day when we say the third paragraph of the Shema. So and redemption, the, though, then is is not a seasonal thing. It is perhaps so precious that we have to mention it every day. Every day that we can never lose sight of it. Well, that's. I think that I think that's on the nose. That uh, that the liturgy. You know, the, if the three great themes of the prayer book are creation, revelation, and redemption, you know, uh, you know, you you create you create light and darkness in the whole world. You give us, you give us, you know, the, the Torah and teach us Chukei Chaim, and Gaal Yisrael. You, you know, sometimes against all odds, slaves go free. So I, I think that's what Barry said is exactly right. That the point of being a a observant davening Jew, if you daven, you you remember in the in the morning you say it too, but especially at night when it's cold, when it's dark, when it's unpromising. You still are maskir, maskirim yitzias and You still remember that you you got out of Egypt. We're living in that in that narrative then, and and I guess part of uh, why why I feel so wistful, I, I I'm still remembering the patriarchs, and I'm still remembering Bracia. So feeling so immersed in those stories, and now we're we're in a totally different frame of mind, uh, and it's a frame of mind in which. Uh, we're, we're encountering God in a different way, through different personalities, through different stories, uh, through a different set of conflicts, and through these uh, plagues, 
these miracles, which uh, didn't happen as much in, in, you had plenty of things going on in Breshit, but this is a new way of, of God's interacting with the world in some way. It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a new world, it's a new time. It is a new world because we're a nation now. We're no longer a yeah. single family. And I just want to add one other liturgical note, Elliot, because you mentioned the patriarchs. So in the Tefillah, the redemption is the prelude to the mention of the patriarchs in the Amidah. Yes. Right? They don't they don't show up until we've mentioned the Exodus. Indeed. So we recall them even with the Exodus. You know, I, I want to this conversation just led me uh to a conclusion a little different than I started with, which is, and I, I, it happened because you, you, Elliot said, um, these plagues, these miracles. And I thought, well, what do we call them? We call them makot. Yeah. We call them, you know, whoopings. <laughs> we call them beatings. God gives, God gives these a beat down. And I'm uncomfortable with thinking that, um, that God could, could, would, should, we should construe it as inflicting all this enormous suffering for the benefit of Am Yisrael to see God's power. I mean, that might be shot in the Torah, um, but that's really bad. <laughs> I gotta say, um, uh, I, I want, what I want to have happen is that Egypt, in its cruelty, Pharaoh, in his particular stubbornness and cruelty and hard-heartedness, and, you know, we talk about Pharaoh's heart-hardening. There's three different verbs that the Hebrew Bible uses. It's, it's the chazak word. It's his heart is strong. It's, it's hiksha, it's kashez. His heart is hard, and his heart is kaved, heavy. We always say God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, really, strengthened, heavied, and stiffened um, are the words and I, I want to think that it's because of that hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, which distributes over his whole society and the cruelty that it makes the makot sensible and and not just bullying. No, not at all. I think I think we're we're entering the world in which God is presenting and breaking through in this way, and that people are responding, and Pharaoh and the Egyptians are responding, and we are coming to the end of the parsha and the end of our time together. Uh, we're leaving off at the plague of uh, Barad, uh, the hail. Next week it picks up with Arbe Choshech and Makkah the locusts, the darkness, and the slaying of the firstborn. But uh, we have established the foundation of this story, encountering Moses and Aaron, encountering the, the tension, and also the people, and how they are going to continue to emerge as the redeemed people. So with that, we're going to bring this to a close. It's great it's great to have this conversation. I want to thank all of our readers, listeners, viewers, and commentators on this. We hope that uh, we've been able to satisfy some of your curiosities about this. Please uh, send us questions or anything you want. Share this link with people who want to grow the viewership and listenership of our great conversation. It's really one of the greatest Parsha talks on the internet. I would say so. What do you think? <laughs> Self-evidently so. It's, uh, it certainly was the best Parsha conversation in Dutchess County. Dutchess County's leading Torah podcast. That was our, that was our slogan. All right. So 
everyone, Shabbat Shalom. If you're celebrating Shabbat Shalom. Holiday, happy holiday. Happy, happy 2022, everybody. Okay. Uh, you know, 2021, 2020 was so hard. We thought 2021's got to be better. 21's been pretty hard, too. I got a 22 has got, got, got to be better. Do you know what the word of the year was, by the way? The Hebrew word of the word year was? No. Tirlul. Tirlul, which was amazing. <laughs> What's the word? Tirlul. Tirlul. Stunning. Amazing. Wow. That's the Hebrew word of the year. And on that note, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. שלוש אפים